Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is the Slow Poisoner. I come to you from the future with these words of warning. It's a hot horror planet. It's a hot horror planet. It's a hot. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 92. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. Attention comic book fans, Lee's Comics of Mountain View, California has closed. But here's the good news. Lee's Comics eBay store is still going strong with over 10,000 vintage comics, the majority of which are now on sale for half off. Choose from Lee's huge stock of golden, silver, bronze, and modern age comics, and specializing in Silver Age Marvel titles. You can count on friendly service, accurate grading, and quick, secure shipping backed by a money-back guarantee. To check out Lee's eBay store, go to eBay. Click Advanced Search to the left of the search bar, scroll down to Sellers, and enter Lee's Comics, Inc., period. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-E. I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Lee's Comics is shipping daily with no delays. New items daily. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast and get a free bonus gift. Long title, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Song One by One by Michael Aventrella and Mark Arnold. A book that examines each song, gives lots of details about each song and our own personal opinions. You can find this book on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and anywhere where good books are being sold. Our webpage is wordpress.monkeys.com, where you can see many of the songs and give your own opinions of them. And we will be discussing this more on Zilch. Hey, Michael, it says here we've written another book about the monkeys. Wasn't the first one enough? Not at all, Mark. Our original book, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Songs One by One, was very successful, but only covered half the story. Which half? The group half. Our new book, Headquartered, A Timeline of the Monkey's Solo Years, covers the solo half. Who knew the monkeys record so many solo albums? Not only that, but this book covers all of their solo projects, including stage shows, horse racing, running record labels, directing and starring in TV shows and movies, voice acting, and jail. Jail? Did the monkeys go to jail? Ah, you have to read the book to find out. You've sold me. Have you sold them? Who, who, who's them? Those people out there listening to this. Well, listen to this. This book has discographies, photos, and other information about the prefab for Mickey, Davey, Peter, and Mike, the solo monkeys, plus another nifty cover by Scott Shaw. Wow, he did our last cover, and this one's equally good. Where can you get this masterpiece? Announcer. Announcer? That's me. Get Headquartered, a timeline of the monkey solo years, written by Michael A. Ventrella and Mark Arnold. Those two guys. It's available in hardback, paperback, or ebook from BearManorMedia.com or from Amazon. Get your copies today.
Cool. I'm going to get one today. The Warren Kramer book is now being laid out again after a long delay. And I'm still working on my Disney and Mad books and an article about Popeye. Today we feature an author, collector, museum curator, and TV show creator. Here he is, Tim Hollis. Okay, on the phone today I have Tim Hollis. How are you? I'm just great, Mark. How are you? I'm fine, too. And as I usually Wonderful. do... Wonderful. <laughs> well, as long as we're both doing good, I guess that's about as good as you can ask for. Yes. <laughs> and how I usually start out the Fun Ideas podcast with my guests is, tell us a little bit about yourself, and in your case, how you got to be an author and all your collections and everything. We'll, we'll jump around and everything, <laughs> so there's no... It's kind of freeform, so, it's, so go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is true that... Uh, People, different people know me for different aspects of what I do. Uh, primarily, I'm an author of books about pop culture history, mm -hmm. and that can go in any direction. A lot of the books deal with tourism history, uh, but of course, as you know, I was the co-author with Greg Airbar on Mouse Tracks, the Disney Records history. Uh, I did one called Hi There, Boys and Girls that was the it was an encyclopedia of locally hosted kid shows. Uh, I did one called Ain't That a Knee Slapper, which is the uh, history of rural comedy in the 20th century. And, uh, you know, to tell you the truth, I've, <laughs> I've done so many that I've forgotten what they're all about. But I think, I think the one I just turned in to my publisher is my 34th. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it, it makes it sort of hard to keep up with them in any sort of order. But um, so a lot of people know me for being an author. Other people know me because of the uh, the museum that I have here uh, in my house, which is near Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, I have a two-story museum full of pop culture memorabilia, uh, toys and games and puzzles and souvenirs and holiday memorabilia, and I, I don't know what all is in there, but. People, if people happen to be traveling through this part of the country, they're welcome to get in touch with me and visit because that's uh, that's what makes it so much fun. Hmm. And then, of course, lately we'll talk about this more. But I actually have started a web TV series that's based on the writings that I did back when I was actually a kid, back in the uh, back in the seventies. Uh, those characters have been revived for a show that we call it the kids show for grown-ups <laughs> because it's, it, it's theoretically a children's program but adults seem to enjoy it as much or even more than today's kids do so like i said i've i have my fingers in a lot of different pies <laughs> so um i guess you know it, you kind of talk about it on your um on your website but you know how did you get started in writing i mean was it just something that you realized you could do once you learned how to write or uh, yes, you just uh, had a I lot of ideas, always, or what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I guess I always wanted to be a writer. Uh, actually, I started out. Uh, I, I guess I started out drawing before I before I actually wrote. And of course, all the years that I was writing stories, you know, there when I was in school, I wrote them and I illustrated them as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I always knew that I was going to go into writing, but I didn't know what kind it was going to be. Mm -hmm. 
those early stories that I wrote were very, very much influenced uh, by the Oz books. I loved all 40 of the Oz books. Mm -hmm. And uh, also things like Alice in Wonderland and, and so forth. The way I described, there was a reporter that asked me about the web series not too long ago. And the way I described it to him is that the stories that I wrote as a kid were, they were sort of a melting pot of everything that I enjoyed, whether it was uh, the Oz books, Alice in Wonderland, animated cartoons, they, it just, they just sort of all melted together into what I wrote back then. So I think that I probably could have gone into just about any kind of writing, but nonfiction ended up being what I was doing. Right. Um, when, when did that transition... Enough, though, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, strangely enough, even as a kid... Uh, I did a st I did some stabs at nonfiction writing, so you know it wasn't like it was totally foreign to me. <laughs> but when, when did the transition happen? I mean, uh, you know, it's it, like it seems like there was a time where you kind of stopped the uh, fiction, yeah. fiction stories and just kind of shelved it. So when was the transition? Yeah, it, it, it's, I would I guess that I would have to say that my longest dead period, if you want to call it that, was between the time I graduated from high school. Uh, in 1980, mm -hmm. uh, and my first book was actually published in 1991, but that manuscript was primarily written around 1983, 84, I guess, mm -hmm. and uh, I had actually uh, tried to sell some other ideas to publishers back then with no interest, but I guess you would say that between 1980 and 1990, that was the longest period that I wasn't having anything for anyone to see. I see. And um, after, the, after the book came out in 91, there was another pretty long dry spell <laughs> until a publisher accepted another book, and from that point on, I've never been without a deadline. So wow. about <laughs> Since about 1997, I've always had a deadline that I'm working on. Wow. So. <laughs> um, what was your first That's book? Fun. I'm looking at your uh, various books on Amazon here. and you got yeah, have The very first one, it was a biography of a local children's TV performer that I worked with. His name was Cousin Cliff Holman. Ah. He was the fellow who hosted the Popeye cartoons on Birmingham television for years and years. And then in the early 80s, he needed a puppeteer. And he hired me to be his puppeteer, first for personal appearances, and then when his TV show was revived a couple of times, I stayed with him as his puppeteer on that. So that was a lot of fun to get to to get to work with someone that I had watched when I was actually growing up, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, he he was one of those performers who had kept absolutely everything regarding his career, every scrap of newsprint that ever had his name in. He had these enormous archives, and that was why I was able to do uh, his biography. But once again, it was almost 10 years from the time I wrote it until the time it finally got published. So right. sometimes it just takes a while for the rest of the world to catch up with me, I right. guess. Was it uh, a lengthy genesis just because of how publishing was back then? Because, I mean, now it's pretty easy to just self-publish if you really wanted to. Oh, yes, if anyone. Well, yeah, I never I never really thought about doing the self-publishing because of the marketing aspect of it. Right. But, uh, yeah, I had contacted a lot of publishers in Alabama, you know, and everyone 
everyone knew who Cliff was, but no one thought that his story would make a very good book. <laughs> and, uh, oh, well. you know, finally, finally, someone did. Mm-hmm. And uh, but like I said, that didn't really that didn't it didn't lead to anything really. It was that the book was sort of a dead end. Mm. Uh, but it's still believe it or not. This week uh, I had someone who had contacted me. I've been they bought three copies of it. Mm. So I guess that even though I still have all of the remaining copies of that book, it still sells every now and then. Now, but, did that uh, lead immediately to hi there, boys and girls, or? Uh, no, not really. Okay. The one that the one that really broke me out of the local or statewide market was the one called Dixie Before Disney. That um, it was written in 1997 and came out in 1999. But that was the history oh, of the okay. the southern tourism industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, there had been a lot of books about Route 66 and tourism of that sort, but no one had ever written about the South's tourism industry before. (laughs) And once again, that one was rejected by I don't know how many publishers (laughs) um, until someone, one of them said, this is the kind of book that needs to go to a university press. So I said, well, okay. And uh, I, I sent a query letter to all of the university presses in the South Mm-hmm. And on the same day, uh, one morning, I had when I got to my office, I had an email from the editor at the University Press of Mississippi mm-hmm. who said, uh, we want to see that manuscript now. He said, overnight that manuscript wow. to him. <laughs> and that was, what, that was before I had learned that you don't write a manuscript until you have a contract. Right. Uh, you know, but that one was already a finished manuscript. And that afternoon, the University Press of Florida sent me an email saying the same thing. And so that was kind of nice to have two publishers competing for, for something that every other publisher had turned down. I don't have that but, one. Which one. Which one ultimately chose it then? Mississippi got oh, cool. it. Right. And I went on it. I've done several books for the University Press of Florida since then. Yeah. But, um, but that was one with that book. It came out at a very opportune time. That was before the Internet. Mm-hmm. So newspapers all over the South picked up on that book, mm-hmm. and they would customize their articles to their area, you know, that was covered in the book. Mm-hmm. And the next one for Mississippi was the Hi There, Boys and Girls, and it, too, ah, okay. got a tremendous amount of attention. It had an, an Associated Press story that was syndicated all over the country, but unfortunately... Those days are long, long gone <laughs> when books get that kind of attention. Right. That's the first one I heard of was the Hi There, Boys and Girls. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. but the other one, yeah. I, I want to go back a second here since you're talking about it. Uh, what's in it? I've never seen that one before except for the cover. Uh, well, Dixie before Dixie Disney. Before I mean, Disney. Uh, obviously the biggest park down in the south probably is Walt Disney World, but, I mean, are you talking yeah. about actual smaller type theme parks that existed or even strange little things like big balls of twine or whatever that you have well you not, know, maybe not we didn't have so much of that down yeah. here but basically yeah. it was it was what what southern tourism was like before disney world changed everything ah i see okay uh, okay and a lot of the attractions some of them are still are still in business a lot of them are not a lot of them have changed past all recognition <laughs> But, you know, in Florida, before Disney, there was, there was nothing bigger than Silver Springs and Cypress Gardens. 
Those were the two. Those were the two titans of Florida tourism mm-hmm. uh, in those days. And in the rest of the South, you had uh, Rock City on Lookout Mountain near Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there was Six Flags Over Georgia, which was the first the first theme park in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, there was in Arkansas. There was Dog Pack USA, the <laughs> Little Abner. Theme I've heard of that park. one, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, so all of these places, yeah. pretty much. Anything I wrote about in Dixie Before Disney could have been a book all of its own, and quite a few of them have become books of their own, either that I've written or that other authors picked up on. That's something that I discovered has happened numerous times with my books, is that I would pick a subject that no one else had ever written about, and then it would spawn, you know, a half dozen other books on the same, you know, taking the same topics and elaborating on them. So, yeah, yeah. You know, I guess I have to be, I, they say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I kind of like what Red Skelton said about it. I don't know if you've ever heard that. But uh-huh. Red Skelton said, uh, imitation is not the sincerest form of flattery, it's plagiarism. <laughs> <laughs> so, I have heard that before. I didn't know if it was, I, I don't yeah, think I, I heard it attributed to Skelton, but that, you know, yeah, yeah I get it. <laughs> um, no, I was kind of curious because, yeah, it's like, and I might check that book out, you know, because I see it here. Because, yeah, I'm always interested in uh, theme parks. There's like this book that came out in the 70s called The Great American Amusement Parks, and it had, it talks about amusement parks all over the, pl- the country way back into the uh, 19th century, and, you know, it always fascinated me, you know, anything pre-Disney, because, you know, as a kid, I always thought, oh, Disneyland's the first and only park, you know, well, no, there was plenty, <laughs> plenty before that, you know, so. Yeah, uh. yeah, I mean, Disneyland was probably what we, we would consider it the first theme park, but yeah. of course, there had been a lot of, a lot of amusement parks before then, and uh, some that you might even, you might consider a park like, um, oh, Santa Claus Land that was yeah. in Indiana. You might have considered that a theme park because it was themed around Santa Claus. Right. But, and of course, that's the park that is now. It's called Holiday World. Yeah. And I don't. I'm not sure that the theming is what it used to be. Just like with most parks. Yeah. I mean, Six Flags Over Georgia. It lost its theming as well as. Six Flags Over Texas, the one yeah, that came Yeah, I was saying, it. the only they reason why it's Six, six Flags is just because of Texas, right? Because they have some sort of thing that there are Six Flags that Texas is under. Yeah, there were yeah. six, in other words, there were six different countries' flags that had flown over Texas. Right. Uh, when they did Georgia, they had to fudge it a little <laughs> bit, uh, because there had not technically been six different countries, but the Georgia flag was one of them. Of course, in Texas, I mean, the Texas was its own country at one time, so right. that's why they were able to cap. Georgia never was its own country. But then, by the time the company built the third park, Six Flags Over Bit America in St. Louis, mm-hmm. uh, they really had to fudge it and count both the Missouri and, in- and Illinois flags okay. as two of them. So, uh, that was, as far as I'm concerned, that was the last of the real Six Flags parks. Because right. From that point on, they only bought existing parks and put the brand name on them. Exactly. They didn't yeah. have anything to do with the, uh, you know, the historical theme. But um, right. Um, but yeah. So anyway, yeah. Look, you won't be able to relate to that book as much as a, as a person who grew up traveling in the South would. But you would certainly 
learn something from it. I think Dixie before Disney is officially out of print now yeah. after over 20 years, but there are probably still copies available somewhere. Yeah, I mean on Amazon there are the price might be oh, yeah. high might be higher than what you originally had. It says thirty two thirty two, so <laughs> that's yeah, probably about yeah. you know. So, but well, I think I've probably I have probably collected all the royalties off of that book that I ever <laughs> will since it's out of print. <laughs> yeah. Um, moving on from that one, so you have other ones that seem similar. I mean, was this part of a series? Then it says like remembering Florida Springs, and one it says it wasn't in. It wasn't intended to be part of a series, but like I said, yeah. uh, there were so many topics that really deserved uh, more in-depth discussion mm -hmm. that uh, other that through other publishers I've been able to elaborate on it a little okay. bit. I've had to be very, very careful because an author can be t an author can be typecast just as badly as an actor can. Yes. And when Dixie Before Disney first came out, uh, you know, and I wasn't I wasn't known for any kind of writing except for the people in Alabama who had seen the Cousin Cliff book. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as anyone else was concerned, that Dixie Before Disney was my debut. Mm -hmm. And I remember that the publisher, they set up a book signing down at Silver Springs in Florida. And when I got there, they had this huge sign on the table, and it said, Meet Travel Writer Tim Holland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, I have got to stop this before it gets started, because yeah. I was already being typecast when I only had one book that yeah. anyone had I, I know that from personal experience. I mean, yeah. I started yeah, off you doing Harvey Comics fanzines, and everybody thought, you're the Harvey Comics guy. Well, I am, but... I know yeah. a lot of other stuff. Now I've written books on other animation and music and everything else, so it's okay. Yeah. But for the longest time, I, I, I know what you're talking about. I was pigeonholed on one topic, and it's like, no. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I also find that my audience is, is, in some cases, very segmented. Like, you will notice in those books, because I live here in Birmingham, I've done several on different aspects of Birmingham, Alabama history. Yeah. Well... Those go over great for the people who grew up around here, but if I'm doing a book signing for one of those Birmingham-related books, someone will come up to my table. Uh, at least I hope someone comes up to the table. You know what that's like. <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. You, sometimes you look at the people passing by like a ship, you know, like <laughs> the people on Gilligan's Island looking at a ship passing in the distance. You know? Right. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, someone will come up. And, you know, oh, this is a great book. I remember this. I remember going to this place here in Birmingham. What are you working on next? And if I say, oh, I'm working on the history of Disney records, it's like, oh. <laughs> you know, it's like they don't, they're it just, you know, they like the Birmingham books, but they're not interested in anything else right. that I write about. Right. <laughs> you know, whereas people who have read Mouse Tracks, they would have no interest in the fact that I did books about Birmingham. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's like looking at all your books and saying, yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to read through them, but yeah, I have no real connection to the South. No. Other than I but lived I'll in Fl you. Florida for a few months, you know, about mm -hmm. 20 years ago, you know, yeah. but, you know, that's about it, you know. Well, I'll tell you the funny thing, too, is that um, I, I still do this as much as I can, but I think every one of my books has some sort of reference in it to the other books. In other That's words, cool. I'll have 
I'll have some sort of, in, in, when I did Hi There Boys and Girls, mm -hmm. scattered throughout that book, there are references to the places that I wrote about in Dixie Before Disney. Yeah, I remember uh, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, do, I do that on purpose, yeah. uh, you know, so that the books, they, they have something that links them together. Well, also, and, you, um, you know that part of the country the, the strongest. You might as well add it in every book you write. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and sometimes I'll have, I'll have a gag that will be it'll, either uh, the editor or someone will reject it from one book, and I will, you know, I'll take it out and I'll just pack it away and use it in another book when the topic <laughs> comes up. And a good example of that was in um, uh, in Mouse Tracks. Yeah. We uh, we talked about a uh, there was a record that Disney put out in the early seventies uh, with uh, the Candyman as the title track on it, and then all of the songs on the album had to do with candy or sweets mm -hmm. or things like that. And one of those songs was "I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing," mm -hmm. and uh, so when I was Greg and I, we both wrote the chapters in that, and then so like one paragraph will be his, and the next paragraph will be mine. And so you know, you really can't tell who wrote what part of it. Mm -hmm. But I remember that in our part, in our part about that album, uh, I said that, um, of course. I'd like to teach the world to sing was originally a Coca-Cola commercial. Right. <laughs> and I, I made the statement that uh, it started out as a soft drink commercial, but it ended up being a pop hit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> My gosh, that was a funny one. <laughs> but anyway, but Greg rejected that gag. Aww. He said, no, we're not putting that kind of stuff into this book. I said, okay. <laughs> so I think the next book I wrote was the one called Christmas Wishes, mm -hmm. which was about how the baby boomers celebrated Christmas. So I had a section in there about TV commercials, and since I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing was a long-running Christmas commercial, I was able to use my gag there, Greg, to do anything about it. Yeah! Uh, <laughs> well, let's right. see. At least I got, I got solo credit for that gag by doing it that way. <laughs> Let's stick with Mousetracks for a minute, since you mentioned it. Um, is that the only book you did that you have a co-author, or have you done others? Uh, I did one other one uh, about tourism in the Smoky Mountain oh, okay. area, okay. where there was there was a lady who had grown up in that area, uh, and she was actually my co-author on that one, because she had the connections that I needed, ah. uh, and the personal knowledge. I mean, I knew it from a tourist perspective, but she knew it from that being her backyard, basically. Right, right. So, um, but I, those are the only two books I've ever done that that I uh, had a co-author. Okay. And how was it working with uh, Greg? I mean, Greg's a sweetheart. Uh, we, you know, we talked oh, forever. Yeah. So, yeah. oh, uh, we had a we had a great time doing that. And like I said, it was it's even hard <laughs> to know now which one of us wrote which parts <laughs> of it. Now, who came, who came up with the idea for the book in the first place? Uh, I think I was the one who pitched it okay. to the University Press of Mississippi. Actually, what originally happened, you know, that uh, in recent years, uh, Greg has worked with another Disney historian. They got the uh, the uh, biography of Jimmy Johnson, who was the head of Disney Records. Mm -hmm. I think he, I think his was the book called Inside the Whimsy Works. Mm. Uh, they actually got that one published, but that was how it started out. I had found out 
that such a manuscript existed. Uh, but when the University Press of Mississippi looked at it, they and we realized that there were going to have to be so many uh, notes and corrections, and but then this happened that he didn't talk about. That they finally just decided it needed to be a whole new book all of its own. So that was where Mousetraps came from. Okay. But eventually, the original manuscript got published as well. Mm-hmm. So um, now, how did how uh, did you the, how did you split the work on it? Huh. I don't remember. Oh, <laughs> I honestly don't remember. Yeah. Um, I just because. We both knew most of the same records. There were some that Greg was more familiar with than I was. Mm -hmm. But we would just decide what the chapter was going to be about and what we were going to cover in it. And, um, you know, I would write one version of it, he would write another version, and then we would just merge the two together. Very cool. uh, Yeah, so it it was no problem at all, really. Mm Mm-hmm. He's got, he's, Greg's got some great projects coming up now, but oh, yeah. uh, since you've already talked to him, I won't go into all of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, let's see. Let me go back and see if there's any similar to that to kind of keep it on the same wavelength here. Um, yeah, those are the only Disney ones. You, I mean, it, it, is that the only type of records you collect, or do you it just is there's more of Disney records than any other well, subject. Yeah, I mean that happened to be that that just happened to be a, a great topic for a book, but no in the museum. I mean I've got I've got the cartoon records you know more than I know what to do with. But <laughs> the the book that really covered that kind of stuff is the one you probably see there called Tunes in Toyland. Yeah. I have that one. Which is a huge coffee table yeah. book about the history of cartoon merchandising. Mm-hmm. So uh, it has a chapter on records that covers the stuff that we didn't get around to in mouse tracks. As a matter of as a matter of fact, I even made a, a joke out of that in the book itself, where uh, I, I made a, a mention of Disneyland records, and then I said, "Oh, oh, you want to know the history of Disneyland records? Well, there's this other book called Mouse Tracks, and I'll wait here while you order it. Okay, you got that book? All right, now let's go on with the." I remember I that because I do have that I book. I remember that now. That's funny. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I did not. I did not cover the Disney records and mouse tracks because we had already spent a whole volume doing that. Right. But uh, um, now, is, you know, now Tunes and Toyland—that's basically your own collection. So let's talk a little bit about that, and then we can go back to books. So. Mm-hmm. How did you get started? I mean, it's like, I guess you just got Christmas presents or just birthday gifts or whatever or saw stuff in the store. But, I mean, how did you accumulate basically well, everything? I've seen your museum on TV before, so I know <laughs> you have, like, everything. You know, it's like, I don't know how yeah. you got the space for it. But, anyway, that's a whole other story. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Well... Uh, of course, I did have a lot of toys when I was a kid, but a lot of them, my parents had saved lots of them. My mom was really big on saving and documenting everything that I did. When a person walks into my house, the very first thing they see is a table with all 34 of my books on it, and in the middle of the table is the typewriter that I learned how to type on, and in the typewriter is the first piece of paper I ever typed <laughs> that my mom saved and wrote the date on it a couple of weeks before I turned five years old. That was when I started pecking out on the keys. But um, So I tell people, you know, that was where it started. <laughs> oh, wow. 
but as far as the museum is concerned, um, it was in 1981 while I was in college. Uh, I was at the dentist office one day, and I and there was a magazine there, which you know we all we all know the the gags about how the magazines in the dentist office rip they report on Lincoln's assassination and all that kind of thing, you know, because they're so old. Yeah, yeah. But um, the um, this one had an article in it about some fellow somewhere who collected cartoon character toys. Mm-hmm. And there was this wonderful color photo of him sitting in front of this wall that had all of these games and puzzles and lunch boxes and soaky toys and all of that kind of thing. And uh, when I saw the photo, I realized everything in that photo was either something that I used to have or that I still had that we had kept. Mm. And so I remember saying to my parents, I said, you know, it would be kind of fun to go out and, you know, to these flea markets and try to and try to rebuild the collection that I had as a kid. Okay. And from there, it got out of control. Because <laughs> uh, the first thing that I ever went out and bought wasn't even something I used to have when I was a kid. Oops. So the whole idea was shot before it got started. But back then, in the early 80s, um, what we know today as an antique mall didn't really exist. It was mostly flea markets, you know, right. that would set up by the side of the road once a month or on weekends. And so that was where most of my early buying had to come from before before the antique stores learned that that this stuff was collectible just like old furniture was. Yeah. I remember that when it wasn't, you know, of course this is like the 80s and even the 70s, you know, things from the 60s and 50s. Uh, you could find like a plate from Disneyland for like fifty cents or something. You know, it's like oh, no yeah. big deal. Now it's like a hundred dollars or something. You know, yeah. or more. You know, and well, yeah. you see, in in nineteen eighty one, eighty two, eighty three, I was particularly interested in the Hanna Barbera items because mm-hmm. those were the ones I had so much of when I was growing up. But no one in the in the collectibles business they had never heard of Touche Turtle or Secret Squirrel or uh-huh. Wally Gator. They, those names were all just foreign to them. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, I was looking for the, the bubble bath toys, and no one knew what they were either. But, you know, when I stopped to think about the fact that it was only like 15 years earlier that those things were on the market. Right. I wasn't, I wasn't looking for stuff that was very old, <laughs> but it had been long enough that it had been forgotten about. Right, right. Well, I remember that. That's when I started collecting, you know. It was, like, in the in the late 70s, early 80s. And it's, mm-hmm. like, I'd ask about things. And, you know, yeah, it was like that. It's like, I don't remember that. And it's, like, and if I found something, it was, like, it was just, like, ooh, this is mine. And it, like, was really dirt cheap. And then it kind of oh, yeah. changed in the 90s where, oh, people did. are figuring it out now. <laughs> things, yeah. The prices started going that, up, you know. Yeah. You remember that you remember that big tabloid sized paper called Toy Shop that used to be yeah. out mm-hmm. uh, with all the dealers. I think that was when the prices started escalating. Yeah. When, when more and more quote unquote dealers began getting into it, rather than people who were just cleaning out their attic or their kids' old room, you know. Yeah. Uh, but um, so um, you know, yeah, it, so you so you dispelled a myth. See, I always thought you just kept everything from the beginning. So it's like, you, okay, you went back and got things. Now, oh yeah, in, in doing I mean, there that, are things, yeah, uh, there are things in the museum that have always been mine. Okay, but they're not separated into any. You know, they're just mixed in with everything else. I'm not even sure 
that I would recognize them myself if I if I had to. Right. Now I asked Greg this about his record collecting. I said, "Is there any sort of cutoff date? Like, will you, you let, let's stick with Hanna Barbera? It's like, uh, do you not collect anything after, say, the 1980s, or do you collect anything that comes out Hanna Barbera, even if it's made today?" Well, no. I found out early on that I couldn't do everything because, like you said, there is a space for problem with that. Yeah. But generally, if when people ask me that, I say that generally my cutoff for stuff that I get for the museum is 1980 mm-hmm. because that was the year I graduated from high school and childhood was over. <laughs> uh, but that doesn't mean, I mean, there are things uh, in there from later than that. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like no, I absolutely refuse to buy anything uh, later than that. Another another thing that I found out is that I, I started the museum to preserve my own memories, and then discovered that I was preserving everyone else's memories too. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so once I had enough space for the displays, I actually started uh, some sections of it that I didn't have any personal connection to originally. Hmm. Uh, I discovered that I didn't have a whole lot of stuff in there that girls would have grown up with. Mm. (laughs) Uh, And so I started a section on the merchandising of characters like uh, Barbie Mm -hmm. and the many imitators that came out in the, you know, like uh, into the 80s. We had Strawberry Shortcake and Rainbow Bride and all of those characters. Of course, I have no personal memory or connection with any of those but the merchandise is is quite charming to go along with them mm-hmm. and um i don't i don't collect the dolls themselves that's a whole other <laughs> aspect of collecting but it's interesting the characters like barbie they were merchandised just like any other cartoon character with the games and the puzzles and the storybooks and and the records and all of that mm-hmm. so um so now I do have a section. I call it the girly section in the museum. It's for it's for stuff. But you know, it's funny that there are a lot of ladies that visit the museum, and they'll say, you know, they never could stand Barbie or any of those characters. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there have always been misfits, no right. matter who you were. <laughs> right. Now, um, in everything that you've collected for the museum, or even on a personal level, uh, did, have you tried to have a complete? collection of something i mean you know if you know like i i'm thinking uh, of like those little tiny figurines of hanna barbera or something you know try to get all the i don't remember how many there were but you know yeah, i don't know yeah. I, I mean probably not deliberately unless maybe it was some of the uh you know the sets of the cartoon glasses that came out where usually there would be six or eight of them, and I've always tried to complete those sets. Oh, I see. But okay. it's not like I want every set of glasses that was made. You know, certain certain ones appeal to me more than others do. Okay. But um, you know, generally, I will try to complete a set of them if I have them. Right. And do you try just by knowledge or whatever to get the most rare items that you can? Like, uh, yeah, it's very subjective. I yeah. mean, okay. when if I find something. If I like it, if I want it, and if I think the price is fair, I'll get it. Mm-hmm. But uh, other than that, I don't have any any real rules to go by. Yeah. That's what makes it fun. <laughs> what's the most, uh, this might be a difficult question, but I'll ask you, what's the most obscure item that you have in the museum? 
meaning rare or hard to find? I don't think I could even. I don't think I could even come up with that <laughs> off the spur of the moment. Yeah. Uh, of course, I do have everything. Everything is cataloged. Everything is in a database in mm-hmm. the computer. And the last time I updated it, I think it had just gone over 19,100 entries. Wow. <laughs> so out of that, it would be very, very difficult to, to isolate any one item. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, another question I typically ask people, I, I know I ask Greg this, is there like an item that you've always wanted, you know it exists, but it's like, very elusive, and you just have never been able to get your hands on it. <laughs> there, there's an item, I guess, that falls into that category. Uh, I'll try to tell the story uh, quickly, but I remember when I was about probably four or five years old being in a department store, and there was one of these wall decora- decorations. You're, you're familiar with the process called vacuum form, where, you know, it's, it's a kind of a plastic bar relief where, you know, the, 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 the picture is, like, raised on the front where you, and you hang it on the wall. It's kind of uh, a, there's a lot of Christmas decorations and Halloween decorations made like that. It's kind of embossed or something like that? Or? Yeah, sort of. Okay. Yeah, I guess you'd say that. But anyway, there was, there was a, a wall decoration of Snoopy on his doghouse in his flying ace uh, <laughs> pose. And uh, it was so beautiful, beautiful you know, three-dimensional and brightly colored, and I remember pointing to that on the shelf and and saying, I sure would like to have that, and my mom's answer confused me then, and it confused me for the rest of my life, (laughs) (laughs) because my mom said, oh, she said, no, uh, you couldn't use one of those now, that's something the kids ride on. Uh, right on. She said, you'll have to wait until you start to school to get one of those. And I couldn't figure out, how could anyone write on this three-dimensional plaque? You, know? hmm. <laughs> you couldn't even get the paper to lie flat on it. And, you know, in talking to my mom and years later, obviously there was something else on that shelf that she thought I was pointing at. Uh. <laughs> you, know, you know, it was probably, you know, a notebook or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, to this day, I've never seen another one of those Snoopy flying ace vacuum form wall decorations. Oh wow! Yeah. Of course, they were not. They were not not made to last, and so right. I'm sure that uh, the ones that were out there probably all deteriorated as the years went by. Yeah, but, I've had that um, happen a couple times. Um, uh, I don't know if you collected any of the Avon, you know, you know, peanut stuff or other stuff that Avon yeah, put out. Yeah, but they course. used to have these uh, soap mitts, and I had one of the Pink Panther and one of Mr. Jaw. And they came out in the mid '70s, but uh, I kept them as best as I could, and yeah. they just eventually rotted and deteriorated. So yeah. before I threw well, them I mean, away, yeah. <laughs> I took a photo of them, both sides, mm-hmm. A side and B side, and then I tossed them out because they were just disintegrating, just from. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, I think Avon made. I think they made a Charlie Brown mitt, and the soap was shaped like Snoopy, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are some things that just inherently they are not going to survive because yeah. the the material they were made out of. Mm. But uh, yeah, that's which is always unfortunate. I think someone said that the rarest premium that was ever offered was it was from one of the Roy it was one of the Roy Rogers premiums. But you could get a live turtle 
with Roy Rogers' emblem painted on the back of itself. <laughs> as, as the books say, no living examples are known to have survived. <laughs> That's a premium that is truly extinct. <laughs> right. So, so you said the collection generally has a cutoff of 1980. Uh, when does it start? I mean, what's the earliest stuff? Do you go before you're born quite a bit? Or? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, I've got stuff going back into the 20s. Oh, okay. You know, Mm-hmm. Occasionally, yeah. So um, once again, it just depends on whether on whether I like it and whether I can afford it or not. Right, right. <laughs> so you know, um, and uh, is there an admission fee? Is that how that works, or how do how do they no, go to the museum? No, oh, I don't okay. have. Since it, since the museum is actually attached to my house, I wouldn't feel I wouldn't feel right about charging admission to oh, it. But okay. people people do people do. Uh, donations occasionally, oh, so mm-hmm. that's always appreciated. Mm-hmm. And what they what would they do? Probably not, right now, are you still doing it because of the uh, pandemic, or are you, you know, kind of... Yeah, I mean, needless to say, it's, it, I definitely have not had as many visitors mm-hmm. since back in the spring as, yeah. as I had before, but because people are not traveling right. as much. You know, and a lot of, a lot of my visitors are people that happen to be traveling through this part of the country and they either know about it or they find out about it but mm-hmm. that hasn't been happening but no i'm uh down here things haven't been really affected as much as they have been say in california or places like right, that right. so yeah you know, that really hasn't been a, an issue so if somebody wasn't there you how, how would they get in contact with you they just call you well, or email the, you uh, the best way uh i guess that um they can always go to my website, which is the one uh, www.timhollisweirdworld.com, dot com, <laughs> which is it's actually the website for the for the web series. Right. But uh, I use it to promote everything else too. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the email that's connected with that is weirdworldtv at aol dot com. So you know people can always contact me one of those two ways. And um, or they can find me on Facebook. I've always said it's a good thing I'm not trying to hide from anyone because I'm very easy to find on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and and the thing is, it's kind of funny you were talking about the people that know the different kinds of books that I do. The thing that I'm that I have found out uh, since starting this web series is that people, for some reason, they can't wrap it around their heads that not only did I create the cartoon characters that are in it, but that I draw them, that I'm the one who does the illustrations. And I don't understand why, because on the show, I actually draw the characters on the board. Hmm. You know, I have a drawing board where I draw a character each time. And people will still look at the illustrations in the stories. And say, oh, you drew that? Well, yeah. I mean, did they think that when I drew it on the board, I was just copying someone else who had illustrated the stories. I wow. just don't get that. Interesting. But, but you see, that's a, that is a, those stories and the, uh, you know, the drawings and my doing the character voices for them, that's a side of me that 95% of the general public has never seen before. Mm-hmm. So um, that's why, that's why this series is so, is so different. I mean, it's, it's like, the, the old hosted kid shows that we talk about mm-hmm. so fondly, but but not exactly because it's it's built around my own characters rather than 
you know, a Popeye show or a Bugs Bunny show or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So um, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's been <laughs> a lot of fun trying to put it together. I tell people that these characters, these original characters of mine, this is about their third or fourth comeback uh, <laughs> over the last 40 years because every, you know, they'll, they'll go into hibernation for a while and then someone will ask about them and they'll come out for another appearance. So mm -hmm. uh, we'll see how long this one lasts. So how much uh, time do you devote to that? I mean, do you just sit down and write new script and then prepare it well, and then shoot it? or it was uh, actually the, the last time that it was done was about five years ago. There was a cable network here in Alabama that wanted me to do a children's program, and I responded by dragging out those characters again. And we agreed that we were going to do 26 episodes and then decide whether to continue it or not. And, uh, of course, this happens even in network television. After we did four episodes, the fellow in charge decided that it wasn't working and canceled the show. Yeah. So that left me with at least 22 unproduced scripts <laughs> that we never got around to doing. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, there was an agent uh, here in town who knew me, and she thought that it would make a great web series because more people watch TV on the web than cable TV or anywhere now, of right. course. And um, so we started out, uh, we're going to try to finally use up the 26 scripts that I wrote for the original series mm -hmm. uh, before I have to sit down and come up with anything else new, I guess. <laughs> I guess that makes sense. <laughs> because it with my deadlines, I don't have unlimited time to devote to any one project like that. Mm -hmm. But um, fortunately, the drawings were already done for it. Mm -hmm. and and all of that so uh, just arranging the filming is what is what takes up more time than anything else connected with it i guess and then where do you film it actually we film it right here at the museum oh <laughs> uh, the first the first episode uh which is online now by the time i don't know when this is going to air but we may have additional episodes up by that time but the first episode is on the uh the timhollisweirdworld.com website, but we filmed part of it in the museum and part of it in my library okay. uh, because it made it, it made a great backdrop with all of these animation-related books on the shelves and so mm -hmm. forth. But after we did the the pilot episode that way, we decided that from from this point on, we're only going to film in the library because it was just too difficult to for the, the camera crew to move their cameras and their lights and their microphones and try to work it around the displays in the museum without yeah. knocking anything over. Mm -hmm. So we are we are no longer filming in the museum, but occasionally I'll be bringing props out of it to use for you know for different aspects of the program. But yeah. um, that was just a little too nerve-wracking. <laughs> yeah, our episode should be uploaded before the end of... Uh, excuse me, before the end of October, so that's right. Okay, good. We should have at least one more show <laughs> mm -hmm. up by then. Okay. But um, they, there's a lot of post-production involved with it. We have a lot of... We have special effects, we have music, we have sound effects, and all of that kind of thing that has to be put in after the basic filming is finished. Mm -hmm. But... Um, but people, they are, you know, there'll always be at least one episode up to view, and then we'll have links to the older ones as well. But, um... Very cool. So, yeah, like I said, I definitely, uh... 
I'm definitely involved in a lot of different things that don't necessarily overlap with each other. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, still want to ask you a few more things. Uh, well, first of all, I will check out the series once we get done today, you know, okay. and see, see you know, what I think of it, and I'll give you some feedback. Um, but I right. uh, had some more questions about some of your books, and so, um, like, um, hi there, boys and girls, since that's not just uh, Alabama or the South, you did cover basically the entire country. What was your uh, process for researching that particular book? Oh, I've always said I would, I would never even attempt a project like that again. <laughs> but when, when I was, when I was doing that book, basically from about 1998 to maybe 2000, that was the, that was the very, very early stages of the internet, hmm. and so uh, most of now, if you go, if if you Googled the kids' shows in any certain city. I, there are articles, there are memories all over the place. Right. But, but when I was doing that book, uh, I was pretty much down to sending either an email or a letter to every TV station in the country. Oh, wow. Asking them what they used to do, you know, what their local programming was. And, of course, there were some that had no idea what I was talking about, but more often than not, they would put me in touch with some old retired uh, producer or maybe, uh, you know, an old newscaster, someone who that they knew had been with the station back in those days, and then they would put me in touch with someone else, and it would snowball from there. But I don't think it could be, that couldn't be done today, because I don't think today's TV stations even know who their old Imp retired employees are right right <laughs> um, you know and most of those people have, have probably died off i know the uh, the hosts that we had here in birmingham they were all alive yeah when i first started working on the topic but i think every one of them uh is dead and gone now except for one a couple of the ladies who were our romper room teachers mm, yeah uh are still alive and they're and they're well into their 80s now. So, right, right. Uh, you know, it just once again, like the merchandise, there's just something about that passage of time that uh, there's just nothing you can do about it. Right, right. Yeah, I was just kind of impressed because you know, like I said, that was probably the first book of yours I saw, and uh, you got. Uh, I I lived in. Uh, I grew up in Northern California and I grew up in Southern California, and so okay. I knew. You know, and I'll just rattle off shows. Uh, Northern California had like Captain Satellite, and then Charlie and Humphrey, and uh, Captain Cosmic, and things like that yeah. during the sixties. Skipper Sedley, I think, was one of those. That one, I'm, uh, uh, Mayor Art was one, and uh, yeah. you know, some of those Captain predate Facto. me, but I know about yeah. them. And then uh, in Southern California, they had Hobo Kelly and uh, Skip and Wolfer, and uh, yeah. they had a Fair Popeye gone. show. With Tom Hatton and things like yeah. that, so you know it's like, you know, so yeah. and you got most of them, if not all of them, if I remember correctly. Oh yeah. So, well, in a market in a market like Los Angeles or Chicago or New York, there would be absolutely no way to document every single one. Yeah. But it, you know, it's pretty easy to, to tell which ones were the major ones and which ones were the minor ones. Yeah. But um, one thing that I discovered is that. With those being the three biggest markets in the country, it was very interesting at the different um, the different character 
those had. The New York, the local New York kid shows generally seem to have uh, a very snarky, sarcastic, uh, almost a put-on type. Uh, you know, I guess it was that New York sense of humor right. that you talk about. <laughs> yeah. Where the ones in Los Angeles were more uh, literally Hollywood. They, you know, they actually employed people like Hal Smith as their hosts. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, in Chicago, you had the Midwestern. They were just kind of, you know, friendly, middle of the road, uh, how you doing there, kids, you know, type <laughs> things. So it is, it's very interesting at the, at the different personality of the three different, those huge markets. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. And that was one of the most interesting things I found out when I was doing it. Right. And, yeah, it's too bad they don't have anything, of course. The nature of TV just completely changed. So, yeah. oh yeah. yeah so. <laughs> well, like I said, yeah, that's why everything's gone to online. And I think you'll notice when you see that program of mine, I don't actually. I'm not trying to emulate any particular host that I ever saw. I'm just myself. Or I'm Tim Hollis, the author who has a museum full of collectibles. <laughs> you know, I'm. You know, I'm not trying to be a character of right. any sort. Yeah. Although people would say I am a character. Yeah, um, but, um, uh, you know, when I go back, when I look at the finished programs, I can see where I have picked up mannerisms from different hosts that I've known. I can even see a little bit of Jack Benny, maybe a little bit of Bob Hope. You know, mm-hmm. I can just, I can see, I can see some of that, you know, in the finished product that maybe I couldn't even recognize it at the time I was doing it. Right. But I will mention that the first episode you'll see is about 50 minutes long. It's like two regular episodes put together, but the future episodes are only going to be 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. If we, The only complaints that we've ever had about the first episode is that it's so long but I always say, well, you know, guess what? It's on YouTube. That doesn't mean that you have to sit there and watch the whole thing. Right, right. <laughs> you can you can pause it and come back later in the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't think I don't think length is as much of a problem online as it would be if someone was having to sit down and watch a TV program. About right, it. right. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe people are still having to get used to that. I don't know, yeah. but. Um, when I listen to you and Greg, uh, I probably won't listen to the whole hour at one time. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, you know, I with my podcast, um, you know, I generally like to have new episodes, uh, but you know, occasionally I just need to take a break. And uh, yeah, with, with the pandemic, I've had time to do more because I'm at home most yeah. of the time. So uh, I, normally I took a summer break, and I've done this since 2018. So. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's fine. And, but it, you know, if I take a break, then I just re-promote an older episode, you know, so sometime in the future, I'll say, Hey, here's an encore presentation of the Tim Hollis episode. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. The, yeah. I was going to say it, yeah. it won't go out of date. That's for sure. No. And, and even but, if it uh, is, I mean, I've had people back and stuff like that. So, you know, you talk about your new projects or whatever's going on. Mm-hmm. So it's not that big a deal. Sure. And, well, with 34 books to talk about, we could do them. We could do a, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, a twelve-hour mini-series out on yeah. <laughs> and and that's what I've realized on some people I've interviewed. Uh, uh, yeah, that you know, wow, I just kind of 
I'm not going to touch on all 34 books, but there are a couple I'm going to ask about. But, yeah, if we ever want to go in depth on another episode, sure. Um, but the one I did want to ask about, because it, it looks fascinating and I do want to get a copy of it, uh, The Land of Oz, is that an actual Oz theme park? It was. Okay. Uh, back in, that's spelled W-O-Z, by the way. Uh, but, um, no, it was actually a theme park up in North Carolina. It's okay. on the top of Beach Mountain which uh, is uh, it's kind of up in the middle of nowhere, but it's a ski, it's a ski resort area. Mm-hmm. And the Land of Oz theme park opened in 1970 and closed in 1980. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, the remnants just sat abandoned okay. in the woods. Uh, but then around 1990, uh, the property it became the centerpiece of a, of a, a very upscale housing de- development. But they left most of what was what remained of the park, and um, now it's open one or two weekends a year for for various festivals. And I think that people can they can even reserve private tours of the property. It's it's quite amazing at how much of it is still there and how much of it has been restored, uh, considering how long it was it was forgotten about. Okay, but. Um, Anyway, yes, that book is, is one okay. that if anyone is interested in the in the different Oz offshoots, that one definitely gives you a okay. A I I thought it was something you might not have seen. I thought it was that park, but I wasn't sure because yeah, yeah, I had heard about point. that that you know there was a an Oz park that was abandoned for quite some time, and so I wasn't mm-hmm. sure if it was that one. Okay, so now we know. <laughs> yep, uh, that's it. <laughs> And uh, then the next one, just because I can't read the, is it Pizzits, your story? What's that? Is oh, that... <laughs> well, that is, that's one of my Birmingham books. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, that publisher had a, they had a whole series of books about uh, local department stores, and I did two of them. Uh, that name was pronounced Pizzits. Oh, okay. And that's a, a, that's a, a department store? Okay. All right. Yeah, it was, that was, that one. We had another store in Birmingham called Loveman's, and I always, Pazitz and Loveman's were the Birmingham equivalents of Macy's and Gimbel's. They okay. were the two that were that were always at each other's throats as far <laughs> as the marketing and trying to get new customers and all of that. Okay, so that's but, probably uh, your most obscure book then, <laughs> since I don't even know how to pronounce well, it. Well, so. yeah, for any other part of the country it would be, yeah, yeah but there's... But people down here, of course, yeah. you know, grew up going to both of those stores, which are long out of business, just like most of the local department store chains are. Right. If the publisher sent me, uh, before they asked me to do those two books, they sent me examples of some of the others that they had, they had done. And it's amazing whether, I think they sent me one from Baltimore and maybe one from Philadelphia, but it's interesting, these these homegrown department stores, they all follow the same trajectory, and they all seem to have gone out of business hmm. within about five years of each other. Wow. <laughs> so, hmm. That's just, it's another one of those things that just seems to be consistent all over the country. Yeah. It's kind of a shame, but, you know, things change. Yeah. <laughs> and if, like... they didn't, if they didn't go out of business, they were, they were swallowed by another company like yeah. Macy's or something like that. Exactly. I know someone told me one time, they said, one of these days there's only going to be one store you can shop at. It's going to be called Wall Macy's. <laughs> <laughs> once, once they have put everyone else out of business and Walmart and Macy's merge into one company, that's the end. Exactly. 
Um, let's see, going down the list here. This one, uh, I think I was planning to order and I just forgot about, but uh, tell me what's in it. Uh, Christmas Wishes, a catalog of vintage holiday treats and treasures. Well, that was the one I mentioned about okay. how the baby boomers celebrated Christmas. And that was that was one of the most fun books to do. It's one of the most beautiful books that I've done. Once again, I think it's actually out of print, so you have to buy it on the second-hand market. Okay. And mostly I see outrageous prices that people are charging for that one. But um, yeah, here... that, was one, that one, believe it or not, <laughs> I think that's the only book I've ever written that the, the publisher... Well, a lot of these books, the publishers come up with the ideas for them, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, that makes it a lot easier to sell it if it's the publisher's own idea. But in, in that particular case, one Christmas, I sent out a Christmas card that was a reproduction of an old Woolworths magazine ad with mm. the toys and that kind of, the candy and all of that stuff. And um, the, the editor at that particular publisher he, I, he got my Christmas card that year, and he said, Hey, that gave me a great idea for a book, and that was where Christmas Wishes came from. Oh, okay. It was the, the, uh, the proposal was a Christmas card. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> but he actually, uh, he wanted it to be, originally, he wanted the title to be The Christmas Wish Book. Mm -hmm. But I had to remind him that Wish Book was still a trademark that was owned by Sears. Oh, okay, yeah. And... Uh, you know, so we decided to call it Christmas Wishes, a catalog of holiday treats and treasures. That way we kind of got it in there without violating any trademarks. Right. <laughs> now, is there photographs of actual items or just pictures from the catalogs or both? Uh, all kinds of stuff okay. in there. There are ads. There's uh, you know, photographs of objects from my own collection, uh, catalog pages. It's... It, it's it's a complete, it's, it's kind of like a scrapbook more than anything else. All right. Yeah, I, I, that was one that always interested me, and I totally forgot about it until I'm looking at your books, and I go, oh, yeah, I wanted that book. Well, good, yo, good <laughs> luck getting a copy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, the ki yeah, the, there is a Kindle edition, so I might have to get that one instead. Well, it's, that is still available, yeah, yes. Yeah, I, that I one, didn't know they were still putting it yeah, out there. Yeah, that one says it's fine. available here on Kindle. So, <laughs> And then looking down the list, there's your Loveman's book. <laughs> Now, the next one I was going to ask you about, um, Ain't That a Knee Slapper? Um, what type of shows are in that? It just anything like Hee Haw and Real McCoys yeah, and Beverly yeah, Hillbillies? It, and, it was uh, yeah, rural comedy in the 20th century. It kind of, it, it actually starts in the days of, of radio and early records when there were, uh, like there was a comedian on records named Uncle Josh hmm. who did, you know, kind of hillbilly type monologues. Um, and then, of course, in radio, you had shows like Lum and Abner, which yep. was always one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, they, they evolved into, some of them moved into movies. There were Lum and Abner movies. There were, of course, Ma and Paul Kettle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, of course, television. You had the Beverly Hillbillies and Andy Griffith. And right. it, even, it even branches out into cartoons like the Hillbilly Bears. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so, yeah, it just, it covers... Uh, it, it covers all of the rural comedy uh, thing, its rise and its fall, and then it's it's sort of come back with people like Jeff Foxworthy, who's not really the same 
as the hillbilly comedians, but, right. you know, that's sort of what it developed into today. Right. And uh, I think anyone who's interested in entertainment history, movie, radio, television history, would uh, they would really find that one uh, to be enlightening, because okay. I did a lot of research when I was working on that one. Okay. Because that one piques my interest as well, so I'll probably get that oh, one Oh, yeah, point. yeah. Um, I don't know why I haven't got that one. Um, I, I do have your toys book. We did talk about that one. Uh, another one that's a little fascinating, which isn't out here in, uh, oh, I'm in Oregon, but on the West Coast, I'll just say, is Stuckies. That's kind of an interesting thing. And they did an article, um, I don't know if you were involved with it, in the new Retro Fan magazine about Yeah, that's Stuck my article. That's what I thought, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. what, what is the fascination of Stuckies? I mean, interesting... Uh, information is always, you know, want, wanted by me about old restaurants or new restaurants oh, or yeah. clean restaurants. But why Stuckies? Well, what, what, what's the fact? I'm pretty sure that there, there, I think there were Stuckies in Oregon. I think they were in, they were in practically all of the 48 states mm -hmm. uh, at one time or another. Of course, it started in Georgia, so it was always thickest in the south. I yeah. think the state that had more Stuckies locations than any others was Texas. No, oh, yeah. uh, simply because the geography was so huge, it took, <laughs> it took a lot of them to cover uh, that state. But uh, Stuckies was just one of those places that when you were traveling as a kid, uh, you know, back then, there wasn't a McDonald's at every interstate exit. Uh, if you were sure. driving those miles and miles of those early interstate highways, Stuckies was about the only oasis that you would ever see. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think that's why people have such fond memories of it. It was just a place that you stopped when you were on a road trip with your family. Yeah. And most people have fond memories of that. I think that there are probably some people whose parents went out of their way to make the trips miserable. <laughs> <laughs> but And, of course, every state uh, had its own uh, tourism thing like I've, I've, I've told my publisher I could not do a book like this but maybe you need to contact them I have a whole series of the books called the lost attractions mm -hmm. series mm -hmm. uh, which you see there but of course there are tourism areas that I never went to so I don't have any per first-hand knowledge but I actually suggested they needed to do a lost attractions of Oregon mm -hmm. book because I know I know that there were all kinds of things up there because the fellow, uh, in fact, you may even know him, the fellow that created Gravity Falls said that he based that show on a certain area in Oregon that he used to go to as a kid. Yeah. Uh, that I guess was sort of the Gatlinburg or the Pickens Forge <coughs> of Oregon. <coughs> mm -hmm. uh, so um, I don't know, since you do books, maybe I need to put you in touch with my editor so you could do Lost Attractions of Oregon for yeah, them. Possibly. I mean,. Uh, you know, I've only lived in Oregon for five years, but I mean, now I'm starting to familiarize myself. And, you know, they have little amusement parks like the Enchanted Forest, which has been around for 40 years, mm -hmm. 50 years almost. And, and uh, yeah. uh, you know, it's like outside of Oregon, probably nobody's ever heard of it. But it's one of those little charming, you know, yeah. mom and pop well, type it, of attractions that's set in the the hills. And, you know, it, yeah. it, 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 it can, still exists. You know, there have to be dozens of others that don't. Right, so, right. Uh, and then I yeah. know of ones living in California that long gone because the real estate got too high. And so they, they got rid of, I'll just name a couple, Frontier Village, Santa's Village, you know, oh, yeah. things like that. Yeah. You know, it's like, so, 
Um, yeah, I could do a book on California ones easily. Oregon, you know, with a little research, I could easily do it. Yeah, so, you know. Sure. Anyway. But, <laughs> um, yeah, tour, the tourism history, it really, it really goes hand in hand with the, the merchandising, the cartoons, and all of that, because it was all, it was all part of our growing up. It was yeah. part of what shaped us. Mm. And, um, as someone has pointed out elsewhere, they said that the kids of today, there are just too many choices yeah. for all of them to be tuned into the same wavelength the way we are. Yeah. Were. You know, yeah. When we were kids, if you were lucky, you had three TV channels to choose from. Right. <laughs> Here in Birmingham, we only had two for many, many years. <laughs> and so all of the kids were familiar with the same things because that was the only choice you had. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I don't know, you know, I don't know what kids will be nostalgic about 50 years from now. I know. Oh, I'm nostalgic that there was only 150 channels or whatever, you know, what, right. you know instead of 5,000, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, you know. <laughs> you, never under, you never know because, I mean, it, it always seems to me like kids today, and this is just me being general, <laughs> is only play video games and don't pay attention to anything on TV, but who knows, I don't know. You yeah, know. <laughs> well... That's one of the things that I've noticed uh, about doing the web series. Of course, we haven't. We're we're trying to market it as much as we can. We haven't had as many kids, you know, actual kids watching it mm-hmm. uh, as we would like. And of course, it's really hard to it's really hard to market a thing like that to today's kids unless their parents or their grandparents share it with them. Yeah. But the thing that I have noticed, a lot of, in fact, most of our cast members who play the other characters in it are are teenagers. Most of them are anywhere from like, you know, maybe 13 to 17 years old. And it's been very interesting working with them because they have never, it, it doesn't matter what kind of a corny joke I come up with, they think it's hilarious. It's all new to them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they haven't, they, they haven't been exposed to that type of humor Right. And they just fall on the floor. Yeah. Uh, you know, we do we do a little bit of slapstick in there and the first rehearsal that we had on there, I thought they were going to lose it. Yeah. The the first time we did <laughs> because they've never seen that three stooges type of slapstick before. <laughs> <That's> like, <laughs> so I don't know if the audience is enjoying it, but the actors yeah. sure are. <laughs> Vaudeville isn't dead. You could bring it all back and all the same old jokes and it'd all be new again with a new audience. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean it's all it, it it's completely new to them. <laughs> But I find that they also, they're also fascinated by the stuff in the museum. People, people will bring their kids mm-hmm. to the museum. And I try, I try not to have people bring kids that are too young to, I always tell them, as long as they're old enough to understand that they're not supposed to touch anything. Right. Yeah. Uh, but it's really interesting how someone will bring kids that are like seven or eight years old in there and the kids, they are just as fascinated by the old toys as we were when they were new. Yeah. And even though they don't know the characters, they don't know Yogi Bear. Yeah. Uh, they don't know Ricochet Rabbit. But the um, but the merchandise, it was made to appeal to kids, and it still does, even yeah. if they don't know who the characters are. Yeah. So well, it was like when I was a kid. Still, it was like find things like the, the Viewmaster reels. Right. They'll... <laughs> They'll look at the Viewmaster with the three-dimensional Charlie Brown characters in there, and they'll say, Mom, Mom, come look at this. It's yeah. 3D. You know, just like <laughs> yep. something that's just been 
been invented. <laughs> right. And as far as older characters, I mean, you know, I think that that's what helps. If parents encourage their kids to look at something that's older than them, <laughs> you know, oh, you yeah. know like yeah. um, my dad had saved a few comic books, not a ton, but, you know, he had ones with Red Rider and he had a Captain Midnight decoder and, and a little booklet mm. and things like that. I didn't know who Captain Midnight was. I didn't know who Red Rider was, but I learned it yeah. from that, you know, and so... You know, now, you know, it's like whenever I see it, it's like, and then when they do movies like Christmas Story, when they go, you shoot your eye out, kid, you know, yeah. <laughs> and they talk oh, about yeah. Red Rider, it's like I have a point of reference. Oh, yeah, that's what my dad was talking about, you know, <laughs> you know, and it's well, like, my, yeah. My parents were considerably older than most kids' parents of my age. I mean, I'm, I'm always surprised that, you know, most people my age, one or both of their parents are still alive, but most of my pa but my parents have been dead for years and years. But they were uh, they were the ones who taught me about the old stuff, especially the old time radio, because yeah. my mom was a tremendous fan of radio when she was a little girl, mm -hmm. and um, uh, you know, so they would they would explain all that kind of thing to me. My mom was actually the one that even before I started to school. Uh, she would point out people on TV to me, like if we were watching the Hollywood Squares and Wally Cox was on there, she'd say, now you see, he's the guy who, who, who plays underdog. Yeah. Or if we saw Tim Backa, she would explain that he was Mr. Magoo. Right. <laughs> so, you know, when I was very young, I, I began to realize that there were actually talents behind all of these characters that I enjoyed so much. Right. And, um... And I've actually got a little thing. Uh, it, it, it's a little, a little school tablet from before I started. Before I started in the first grade, where my mom was teaching me how to print, and we were doing it. We were. I was printing TV credits. <laughs> uh, in in her handwriting, she wrote "produced by," "voices by," "layout by," you know? mm -hmm. and then I copied what she wrote and then filled in my name after each one because I was going to do all of it. So, you know, here it is, 2020, and I finally am. <laughs> it just, it, it only took 50-something years. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so like I said, she was the one, she was the one who really ingrained all of that in me. And I was one of those kids that always read the credits on the TV shows and on the records. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, all these people we wrote about in Mouse Tracks, I knew, I knew who they were when I was that age because I always read their names on the record labels. Yeah. Well, I, like you, or like what they were talking about, is like I loved it when you could connect the dots, you know, where, you know, you said Wally Cox. It's like, oh, yeah, he's just on this game show. And then you hear him speaking, it's underdog. Oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's like, and, you know, it's like, wow, he does have something else instead of just be sitting in the square here. You know, it's like, got it, okay. And, you know, you know, I, I don't know if you had any epiphanies like this, too. It's kind of a weird thing. It's like, you know, as a Stooges fan, you know, it's like uh, Stooges were still alive in the early 70s. And, uh, you know, uh, one time my mom said, hey, Mo Howard's on TV. Oh, cool. And there's this old man sitting there with white hair, and he's like, who's that guy? That's Mo. And I go, 
what? You know, and then I didn't, you know, I, I think I was talking with Greg about this. It's like I didn't realize how old those shorts were because oh, it yeah. seemed like they're yeah. brand new. They're just a black and white. So I thought they're, I mean, they were making them in the 50s, but I thought they were all made in the 50s. I didn't know they were making them back in the 30s. Yeah. And I, I mean, there's the, old, there's the old joke that that was the reason they always put the copyright date in Roman numerals right. so people wouldn't know how old they really were. Yeah. Uh, talking about Wally Cox, you've probably heard... Uh, the gag they said on the Hollywood Squares one time when uh, when Peter Marshall asked him the question, what does underdog always say? You know, trying to get him to do his famous line. Right. And Wally Cox's answer was, where are my residuals? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that one. I should stick that in my <laughs> total television was good. <laughs> <laughs> Where are my residuals? <laughs> um, but, you know, back then... When there were so many shows like Merv Griffin, I mean, he would have Mel Blanc on all the time. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you know, or Jim Backus or people like that. So uh, those people talking about their cartoon work was just very, uh, it was very common. Mm -hmm. So it, it wasn't hard to catch them if you were interested in that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, slowly over time I learned about Dawes Butler and June Foray and eventually met June Foray and yeah. Scan yeah. Freeberg and... Uh, quite a few others but you know yeah uh, paul freeze i can't leave him out you know and things like that of course so, not yeah. no. but you said those people didn't seem to do the talk show circuit nearly no. as much as the no. uh the others i think they preferred the anonymity of yeah you know people not necessarily knowing what they look like yeah i do have a paul freeze interview that i still have on a cassette i should probably transfer it over um, he appeared on uh, KGO, which is a San Francisco radio station, uh, a couple couple years before he passed away. And by that point in the early 80s, he was like, I'm not going to leave the Bay Area. You know, he loved living in the Bay Area. You know, he says, I'm not going to leave it for anybody. You know, and it's like, you know, if they want, if, if they wanted him to record voices at that point, he says, I'm going to do it here and mail it in or, you know, whatever, you know. Because yeah. he got to that point, you know, where it's like, I don't want to be on talk shows, I don't want to be on TV shows, I don't want, you know, and that's how he'd do it. He'd still do Pillsbury Doughboy and Toucan Sam, which, oh, yeah. you know, things yeah. like that. But he did them from his house, you know, or, or maybe in the San Francisco station or something. But he wouldn't go to L.A. or New York or anything like that anymore. Right. You know? He got to that point, you know, and they'd honor it Even because he was big. <laughs> Even if you're not as famous as Freeze... Uh, there, there's an advantage to getting older and to the point in your life that you don't really, well, just like someone, someone asked me one time about the web series. They said, what do you hope that it's going to, to do for you? I said, nothing. I said, it's, it is not going to affect my career. It's not going to help it. It's not going to hurt it because I've already had my career. Right. Right. <laughs> so it's like, well, it's, it's like, it's not going to, it's not going to, do anything one way or the other and it's, it's nice to not be under the pressure right of of having to make a name for yourself anymore yeah. uh you know i've kind of done what i what i wanted to do yeah well i mean the only reason i do these podcasts is i have a friend named lee uh, Lee Hester, who says, Mark, you interview people all the time. Why don't you do a podcast? And, yeah. and I kind of hemmed and hawed for about a year, not, not wanting mm -hmm. to do it. And then, you know, I started doing it slowly. And I go, this is kind of fun because, you know, I, I, I basically have an excuse. Here, here's the, the bottom line, but, you know, it's basically just a phone call 
that I would normally have, but I'm recording it so anybody sure. can listen to it. You know, it's not like you have to. It's not like you have to put in commercials or anything. Like right. That. You know, and yeah, I'd love to make money on it. I'd love to stake a claim of fame with it. But to me, it's like I'm doing some sort of service that you know people. It's getting a little bit of notoriety, and people go, "Oh yeah, I know about this guy," or "Oh, I didn't know about this guy." Whatever you know, and and yeah. now I do. You know, it's like so. But, um, well, I was going to say we've all, we've already gone almost an hour and a half. Yes, we have. Um, I only had, really had one more question, so you know, it's like okay. uh, we'll take up the other ten minutes with that question. Yes, <laughs> um, because I got this book from you. You actually had some extra copies of it, so I ordered it from you direct, and you signed it. So thank you very much. And I was kind of alluding to it a second ago with Paul Fries, but part of a complete breakfast. How did that come oh, yeah. about? Because that's kind of a left field compared to the others. But I know you said. You, you want to not be pigeonholed in one topic, so, you know. That's right. <laughs> and that's another one that was actually, uh, the idea was one of my editor's ideas. Oh, okay. Uh, down at the University Press of Florida, I went down there for a marketing meeting on one of the other books I had done for them, and the uh, the head editor took me out to lunch, and uh, while we were eating, he just said, you know, I've had this idea for a book I think would be a... A great topic. He said, do you think you could come up with anything on the uh, the serial advertising characters like Tony the Tiger and the Tricks Rabbit? And uh, I think my, I almost, uh, my sweet tea almost came out my nose because, uh, and I finally, I said, uh, yeah, I think I probably have something on that. He had never even seen photos of the museum. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he had just come up with that idea completely on his own. Oh, wow. But... When I said, yeah, I believe I've probably got a little something on that, and then I showed him the display <laughs> of the, the cereal the stuff. So, um, so yeah, that one, that one was his uh, idea, and uh, but it was it was a, a very fun book to work on, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, that was one that was one that I pretty much just put together the story from my own material. There wasn't a whole lot of Mm-hmm. Of, re- of reference material to go by with that one. Yeah. Um, except there was there was a book about cereal that was published years ago by a fellow named Scott Bruce. Yeah, I got that one too. And, yeah. um, <laughs> you know that one. It gave the background on the cereals themselves, but not so much the characters. Yeah. But um, but yeah, that one that one was a lot of fun. I, those those are the type of, type of books that I really enjoy doing. Hmm. Well, I enjoy reading them. So. Well, thank you. <laughs> I always figure if I have fun writing them, people are going to have fun reading them. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, this, the Complete Breakfast, the Mouse Tracks, and the Toys one are probably my favorites of the ones I've read. You know, it's like I yeah, said, yeah. I'm going to probably have to investigate a couple of the other ones, but, you know, it's like, uh, because they mean the most to me. I mean, it's like, I like the kids, I like the kids show host one, but it's... A lot of it was a bit before my time, so it was more c- yeah. just kind of learning history for me. You know, I was like, oh, okay, you know. <laughs> you know. Sure, sure. And, you know, I have a good working knowledge. I've seen episodes of Howdy Doody and things like that, so, you know, but whatever. Um, all right, well, you know, it was a pleasure speaking with you, Tim, about all this. Um, I guess, you know, I usually have people plug, you plug things earlier, but I guess you can plug it all again. So how do people get a hold of you, and what websites should they look for? Uh, you can well, just plug it all over again right at the end here. <laughs> they can, a person can Google my name or look for it on YouTube, and you'll find not only 
not only the uh, the Weird World uh, series, but on YouTube there are all kinds of videos that people have shot in the museum here over the years, and you'll find those under my name. But basically, if you go to www.timhollisweirdworld.com, mm -hmm. uh, that will take you to pretty much everything else. There's a link uh, to the, to Amazon's web page with all of my books. And, of course, the email where people can reach me is weirdworldtv at aol.com. Very good. So... Uh, <laughs> You know, but if people miss either one of those, they can easily find me somewhere else. Yes, and even though it's a pretty simple name to spell, I'll just say it's H-O-L-L-I-S for Hollis. That's correct. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that's as difficult to spell as weird. You know, yes. people, have, people have all different kinds of like W-I-E-R-D. Yeah. <laughs> But That's the weird way to spell I before it. E, except after C, exactly. the word weird. <laughs> <laughs> All right. They covered that in a boy named Charlie Brown and their spellings. Yes. Song, you know. <laughs> weird is the exception. <laughs> uh, well, it's been a blast talking to you for the last hour and a half. And, okay. Um, you know, we can always talk again about a particular subject or maybe That's have you right. and Greg on together. I don't know. But anyway, uh I appreciate you having you on the Fun Ideas Podcast today, right. Tim. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Tim Hollis, for being my special guest. Episode number 93 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2020, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night. doors at the price I'm paying be glad it isn't yours now get up crap mountain 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 Don't fall back Don't fall back Don't fall back